welcome to The Hive Podcast, a show that helps inspire you to pursue your passions and ambitions. My name is Jared Spink and I'm your host. I'm a photographer, videographer, and entrepreneur. Join me as I sit down with other entrepreneurs and creators to learn more about their process, how they've built communities around their brands, and the experiences they've had along the way. I hope that these conversations inspire you to pursue your goals. You're listening to The Hive Podcast. Hey, welcome back to the Hive Podcast. Thanks for listening and watching each and every week. I hope you guys are enjoying the video version if you're watching it. If not, hey, go check it out. You can check it out on my YouTube channel, Jared Spink. Um, well, youtube.com forward slash Jared Spink. You can go check it out there. But this week's guest is a fantastic creative and an entrepreneur. We have Caleb Wojak uh, joining us all the way, well, from San Diego, just like me. How are you doing, Caleb? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. I am super stoked um, to have you on. Um, I've had Pat on the podcast and um, I'm, I'm, you know, really stoked to get to know the other half of SwitchPod and also learn more about you um, as a creative. But for our listeners and even the viewers that are watching the the video version that aren't familiar with you, uh, maybe you can kind of give them the, the quick uh, elevator, elevator pitch of uh, who Caleb is. So I've been running a video production company for about six years now, a little over six years full time. Um, I make a lot of what I would consider to be talking head videos. Uh, I film a lot of online courses for different creators about things like podcasting or watercolor painting or, you know, all, all kinds of different stuff. Um, also have filmed plenty of events and weddings and my own videos for YouTube as well. So that's that's the main thing that I've been doing for the last six plus years. Um, a couple years ago, I came up with this idea for a tripod called the SwitchPod with my buddy Pat Flynn, who you said was on the podcast already. So that's mainly the other, you know, forty to fifty percent of what my I spend my time doing right now. And then with the the small remaining margin of you know five to ten percent of my time, I also make YouTube videos and podcasts as well about usually about video production, sometimes about photography, um, but a lot of gear reviews, tutorials, things like that. Wow, man, there's so much to talk about. Well, let's start with you um, as a as a creative and and how you got started, you know, shooting stuff with cameras. Where, did you grow up always kind of having like that creative ambition and, and messing around with cameras or, or did that come a little later on in life? I would say I was always interested in it. My dad was a photographer growing up uh, and a musician. So he balanced those two businesses depending on what kind of season of the year it was. Um, but I definitely saw the ups and downs of that financially for us as a family of, you know, relying on clients or getting gigs booked for music or, you know, landing photography things. And so I actually went in the other direction where I just wanted a, a steady corporate job. And so when I was in college, I studied supply chain management for one of my majors and my double major, my other major was in the more creative stuff, telecommunications, making websites, making videos, learning audio production, television, that sort of thing. And so I had these two majors, but there were basically no jobs in telecommunications, at least from what I could find when I graduated in 2008 in the middle of an economic downturn. And so I took supply chain management and went that direction. I worked for Boeing after college. I got my MBA and I was totally in the corporate world, Um, but found out that wasn't really for me. I got pretty bored doing that. Um, kind of stumbled into blogging about personal finance. That led to ending up taking a job with another blogger. And through that job, I started filming videos for uh, our online community we had, started making YouTube videos with no expectations, started learning video editing. And then after doing that for a year or two, I decided this is what I want to do full time. And I left that gig to kind of be my own boss. That's awesome. That's a, that's a really cool story. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Um, so how long have you been doing the the quote unquote full-time creative gig? Uh, September, October of like 2014 okay. was when I left my last quote unquote job Okay. to, to be my own boss. Yeah. So, so how, how difficult was it to make that leap? I mean, working for Boeing, I mean, they're a huge corporate company, right? A lot of people that for a lot of people, that's like their dream job, right? So how, how was that process of, of leaving the corporate world and going to something that's a, a, a lot or at least viewed as less secure, you know, being a creative digit, was it kind of like 
you put a, an action plan together and this is what I was going to do? Or did it slowly just start to become something where you at one point was like, okay, well, I'm just going to do this full time. I mean, I tried a bunch of different things when I was at that job of Boeing. So, you know, the, the first two years I was there, I was also getting my MBA at night. And so I didn't really have much free time or I didn't use that free time productively because I was spent. Um, but after the MBA was up, I spent the, the nights and weekends and downtime in my job learning about online business, learning about entrepreneurship, learning about personal finance. And so that was me starting a blog just to like start writing and putting myself out there and grow a tiny audience, a small email list, and just kind of like start networking online with other creatives. And through that, that was where I met Corbett Barr, who I ended up working for at a site called Think Traffic. And I ended up right after we got married, my wife and I, I left my job at Boeing, which has about 150,000 people to go work for one person. And I was his only employee. So it was like a, a huge, huge risk, I would say. Definitely. Um, but also it was, it was closer to what I wanted to be doing, which was working at small companies or startups or running my own business. And I was going to learn more in that position and be able to do work that I cared about more than spreadsheets and meetings and, and PowerPoint. So that that was that was the gamble. I took a pay cut for sure. I lost health insurance. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to start paying for that out of pocket. Um, but my wife was on board with taking the risk because she knew how much I hated my job at, at Boeing, honestly. And you know, I just wanted to take the risk. As far as leaving that to go work for myself, I felt like that was an even bigger risk because I didn't have a regular paycheck. I had had some clients, but I didn't have like a ton of clients that I was just going to like jump ship to and, and make a bunch of money. So that, that felt like more of a risk to me than leaving the, the cushy job with the 401k and everything. Yeah. So when you, when you started to do your production company, what, what, what's the name of your production company, by the way, Caleb? I mean, legally it's doing? just Caleb logic films. Um, Okay. Nothing creative. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, I've, I've, hey, I've gone branding. through the, yeah, I know I've gone through the like names of my business and I like, I've had a couple in mind and like, I use some of them, uh, you know, like in QuickBooks and stuff like that, but I haven't legally changed my business name because, you know, for a while I did want it to like scale up a video production company. But then what I learned was people were just hiring my company cause it was me. And so I just kind of left it as my name. Yeah. It's true. Right. I mean, a lot of people put so much thought and work into the name and it's really just what you produce is way more important than, right. than the name of, of yeah. the business. Yeah. Um, so when you, when you first started doing uh, video production, what kind of jobs were you doing? It was a combination of filming like promotional videos. So people would have, um, books they were launching or a Kickstarter campaign, or they were going to, promote their online course again or something like that. I was still in that like internet marketing sphere of who, who was in my network and who knew that I knew how to make videos. So those were the kinds of videos I was making at the beginning. Um, I did a couple weddings, uh, cause my wife was a wedding photographer. So it was like, Hey, you want to add on video? Uh, what else started doing like YouTube, like just talking head YouTube things, um, multi-camera interviews, some live events. Honestly, it was more like I can do any kind of video you want me to do as long as, you know, you're willing to pay my price. That was what I was willing to do there in the beginning. And the reason I was able to get gigs not being very focused on the kind of video I did was because the people I targeted were focused. So they were like, these are, you know, people that work at software startups or they have their own kind of personality blog or podcast and they want to get into video. Like those are the kinds of people I targeted that were already going to the events I'd been going to for the past three to four years. I already knew them personally. So that was where my focus was on. It wasn't necessarily like I'm going to make sports videos or I'm going to make, you know, that's the kind of advice I would give to people now is to niche down into it like a style of video or a at least a niche of people that you're going to help. So that, that was kind of what I was starting with. And how has it evolved over time? Like, are you kind of still doing a lot of the, the same work or has that, I know, cause you, you do a lot of different things now. I mean, with SwitchPod. And so is the production business still kind of at the forefront or is that tapered off a little bit? I mean, it's still about 50% of income for my businesses as well as time. 
you know, and I have a full-time editor and he works almost exclusively on that stuff um, as well as some of my stuff. So it's still, it's still definitely a big part of what I do. I would say I've gotten more and more pigeonholed into filming online courses for people. Um, that's been 80 to 90% of what I've done in the client side over the past three to four years. Okay. Over the past three or four years, has that, have you seen a big uptick in that with the whole pandemic and a lot of people being at home and looking to make, you know, different revenue streams? Has that, have you seen an uptick on that or has it been kind of, you know, business as usual? I mean, I would say it's, it's just been growing even okay. pre pandemic. I think a lot more people are getting, um, interested in it or are taking more classes or people are making more classes. I feel like there's a lot more places to put those courses. Most of the people that I, or if not all the people that I've been paid to film their courses, they sell them independently. They don't put them on a Udemy or a Skillshare or whatever other platform um, because they've built their audience. They want the the higher price that they can charge. They want you know a higher portion of the revenue. So I, I would say that online courses are becoming even more popular during the pandemic, but I think it's just there are more people that are seeing that as a way to earn a living as well. Gotcha. So when did the, when did the YouTube channel kind of start, um, as like a creative outlet and almost, almost like a side business, right? I mean, at where, or at least how YouTube is now, when did that start for you? I mean, I think I published my first YouTube video on my current channel back in 2013, maybe, you know, it was just, I got a Focusrite Scarlett 2i2, a little USB interface thing for recording a podcast when I worked at Fizzle and the videos that were out there about it weren't helpful to me. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to make a video about this. I didn't really have any plans for what my YouTube channel was going to become. I just knew that I should be putting out content related to video production. If, you know, I wanted to be seen as an expert in getting hired to make videos for people. So it was kind of that it was, I just wanted to be, I just wanted to be seen as an expert so that people would hire me to do client work. I did. I wasn't really trying to grow a YouTube channel to, become famous or get ad money or affiliate income or any of that sort of stuff. Um, and I've definitely am not famous now, but I do make ad money and I do make affiliate income now over, you know, hundred, 200 videos on my channel, uh, that are specific to video production and gear and equipment reviews and stuff. So there really wasn't a plan and I have never been consistent with it. You know, some months in some years I will have put out eight videos and sometimes I'll go three months without publishing a video. I'm never really consistent because it is, it is a side business to me. It's like when I had time mm -hmm. between clients, we would make a bunch of videos or I'd film my own online course and, and release that. But, you know, between my client business and SwitchPod now, it's, you know, it's the third child and it's not getting the kind of attention that, that it could. What I love asking everybody that does YouTube, especially when, you know, their channel has really taken off and it, it started to grow, uh, has started to grow. How did you react when you started to see a community kind of grow around your channel and what you were creating? Was it, was it kind of weird feeling or, or, I mean, just how did you react to that? I think the weirdest part is when other creators that I watched started commenting or replying to me on Twitter or things like that. So when someone that's quote unquote bigger than you subscriber wise comments in your videos, that's always, um, that's always just kind of a reminder that your videos are getting out there. And it's also a reminder of how small your niche is on YouTube. Um, like when I started making videos on YouTube about camera gear and audio equipment and stuff like that, there were way less people talking about that sort of stuff. I mean, there's some of the, like the original people that I learned from back in 2011 were like Caleb Pike and Dave Dugdale and Curtis Judd and, and some of the people that were making videos about that type of stuff back then that I learned from still motion, Philip Bloom, you know, some of the people that were putting out videos, you know, 10 years ago now, um, but I feel like if you fast forward to now, the niche is is very large and there have been some breakout stars from it, like Peter McKinnon. So it, it's it's interesting now to look at the landscape of people that talk about cameras and video and photo and all that kind of stuff compared to when I started doing it. And, you know, I could look at that and be like, well, if I would have just gone full time into it, like maybe I'd be where they are or whatever. But like. I've had other businesses that have been 
successful and paying my bills and I'm okay with that. So I guess, I guess what I'm trying to get at is it's good if your niche grows, but it's also interesting to see how small the different niches on the internet are and how you can become friends with all the other big creators by consistently showing up, doing something unique, being yourself, um, you know, sharing their content and not just copying it. So that, that's a that's a big thing that I would say that I see more so now is a, a creator will make a certain type of video and then a bunch of other people will make it or I'll see it suggested. And it's like, well, someone made that video like two weeks ago, like kind of come up with a new idea is what I would say. Um, but that also keeps me from making a lot of things where like I might have had an idea, but it's so-and-so already made it or I want to review a camera, but it's been out for two months and everyone already made their videos. So it can, it can get in your own way, but I feel like it's, it's important to kind of carve your own little area or your own like specific type of thing that you do or how you're different when you know that people don't just go to YouTube and only watch you. Like they will watch you and your peers. So you want to make sure that you're not just a copycat of your peers too. That's true. And I think, I think the, I mean, I, I view that, to, I mean, to get away from that is you got to create more and consume less, you know, maybe someone's already made the video, but just so you don't steal too much of that point, just even subconsciously is, you know, make your own videos and don't consume as much content. I mean, I love consuming content, but you got to find that balance, right? Between yeah. consuming and creating, especially when it comes to YouTube or podcasting or, or whatever your creative niche is. So going back to courses, um, at the time of us talking right now and, and recording this episode, you've recently partnered up with Moment, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you launched a, a course with them. That That is really cool because Moment is a great company that supports a, a lot of creatives. Um, tell the listeners or the viewers what that course is about and um, kind of what went into producing that course for another company. So uh, I partnered with Moment on my new course called Audio Basics for Video. And it's basically a breakdown of like all the different kinds of microphones, all the different styles you could record audio, the settings you need to use in your camera to, to make sure everything sounds okay. You know, a lot of the beginner stuff when it comes to the audio part of video, because I don't feel like people talk about that very much. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of a hidden thing that can make your videos really great or be more professional is just recording the audio properly and having the right equipment to do so. So that's, that's basics of, of what that course is and partnering with moment. Um, I had, I had noticed that they had partnered with a bunch of different creators for their different courses. They have ones where they produce them. So, you know, the moment team films it and edits it and works with a creator, um, to, to make a lesson, they call them, that's what they call their courses. Um, so like, Jesse Driftwood is a person that they did a lesson with. Um, and I had bought that and watched it. And I'm like, wow, this is really well done. And I have been making my courses for years and selling them on my own. And like I said earlier, I don't really put them on Udemy or anyone that, you know, you can sign up for $10 a month and watch every single course. You know, I, I kind of want my students to to value the course and I want to make it at like a higher, higher production value and have more hands-on time with the students. Um, but Moment also does courses where, you know, they're creator made and they are kind of like a marketplace where, you know, the creator, um, it says on my sales page at Moment, like the creator gets 70% of the sales and the other 30% go to the like marketing and maintenance of the course on the platform. So I thought it was a fun way to, to partner with them. And there are some great courses on there as well. Um, so yeah, try, trying it out. I was going to launch the course anyway. I launched it concurrently in my own uh you know, my own school online as well. But yeah, that's awesome. It's definitely a course. I think everybody should check out. I'll, I'll link it down in the description of the video and in the show notes as well. But I agree that audio is such an important aspect of filmmaking or making any videos. Uh, you hear it all the time. People can deal with kind of bad visuals, but they really can't stand bad audio. So upping your audio is super important. I'm sure that that course offers a lot of, uh, of value to anybody that's willing uh, to take the time and invest in it. That's really awesome. So let's now talk about what probably everybody is curious about, and that would be SwitchPod. So um, for those that don't know, I'm sure everybody does, but SwitchPod is just, it's a really amazing handheld tripod 
liked it. I mean, how would you describe, I would love to hear you describe the product as like the creator. I mean, I feel like I, I keep, I keep one on my desk because it usually comes up uh, in conversation, but, um, where to where to start? So this is what it is. This is SwitchPod. Um, it's a tripod that I invented with my friend Pat Flynn. Um, we prototyped it for over a year before launching it on Kickstarter uh, early in 2019. And uh, after launching it on Kickstarter, it raised over $400,000. And we went on to produce them. And we we have made accessories and other things since then. But the main thing is 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 you put your camera on top and it's mainly meant for filming yourself or you know you can turn around and kind of film other people but it's just like an extension of your camera in, in a way to get it up and away from you but also open it up quickly set it down as a tripod and, and keep filming so you know I, I was frustrated with gorilla pods and how they bent in specific shapes and you could never get it perfectly back into a tripod and i'd seen plenty of videos from like casey neistat of his camera falling over because he's using a gorilla pod and you know that was where the idea kind of stemmed from but we you know we spent a lot of time and energy and and some money to to prototype it and to get feedback from people uh for for creating the product before we launched it so yeah that's that's about the the elevator pitch of of what switchbot is and how it came to be but happy to take the conversation anywhere further i'm open book about you know coming up with this and and launching it I think it's it's fantastic because not a lot of creatives actually come up with a physical product. I mean, Peter McKinnon came out with his bag and, and there's always merch and stuff, but like an actual product line separate from your own brand for creators to, well, to, to create and use it to, to up their, their video production. Um, how did, <clears throat> how did you and, and Pat originally get connected and, and start to come up with, with the idea? I mean, I, I would love to hear how that, how that, how you guys got connected and how that conversation even started. I mean, the very first time I met Pat was at a financial bloggers conference in 2011. So almost 10 years ago now when I was blogging about uh, personal finance and he had his website, smart passive income, we met there. Um, and then I moved to San Diego and he had some video editing he needed done for a couple videos a couple years later. And he was also in San Diego. So he, you know, gave me the hard drive and I did some editing for him. And then eventually I started filming things for him, courses, book launch trailers. Um, so it, it's been like a, a very long relationship of like, I met him at a conference. I started doing some work for him, became friends became a client of his on retainer and we were actually at a, a video conference for his youtube channel we were at vid summit in 2017 um he was speaking but also like we were just there because he wanted to do youtube better he wanted to grow on youtube and that was where the initial idea came from um so so that's kind of how that relationship turned into a physical product i mean where do you start with creating a physical product i mean because just like you, I'm a creative. I create a lot of digital products, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't even know where to begin to know how to make a physical product, how to get it designed, how to actually get a get a prototype. So from that initial conversation of saying, hey, here's a problem I have and I know other people have, and this is the idea I have for a solution. How did the what what were the next steps to actually create to get a prototype in your hand? I mean, we made some really like poor drawings of what we like had ideas for. And like, I still have pictures on my phone of like trying to get the exact shape that we wanted and that sort of thing. But, you know, Pat and I would have only been able to take it so far without asking for help and paying people to help us. So we hired a company called Product, which is a combination of the word proud and product, product, um, to actually like take all these ideas in our head of what this thing would be, who it's for, um, what does it do? What does it not do? What are the key features of it? And that engineer on that team then actually went through the process of, okay, let me actually design this thing. Let me actually make some, make some sketches, do some 3d printing, get, get it a CAD drawn up, get some measurements like, okay, is this angle enough? Are there enough finger grooves? You know, it was, it was all that iterative process of, of slowly working on it. And, you know, it would a few weeks would go by and they'd they'd mail us a 3D print and I would look at it and be like, oh, this isn't right, or drop this feature or something like that. So it's just kind of a slow and steady stream of 
different ideas, trying them out, throwing them away and, and making a bunch of prototypes until they got more real. You know, they got like, so you could actually put a camera on it or it was made of metal and those would cost more. And, you know, so it's just kind of a, a slow incremental step-by-step -step process. You know, if someone came up to Pat and I when we were initially talking about it and we're like, okay, that idea is probably going to take somewhere between twenty dollars and $30,000 and a year to kind of like see if it'll work. And then you can launch it and see if anyone will buy it. We probably would have been like, okay, never mind. But it was like, you know, a couple thousand here, a couple thousand here, you know, some feedback from people to be like, oh, this is cool. Or I could see where this is going. Or, or what if you change this part? You know, so it, it was just like that for about a year um, before getting ready to launch it. How many prototypes did you guys go through before you landed on what now is the SwitchPod? I mean, there were digital ones, you know, like changes digitally. Um, I think I have somewhere around 10 to 12 physical ones though, like physical shapes. And if you go to our Kickstarter page there, I think there's a GIF where they like each get laid out. Um, and so they go from a piece of cardboard or like plexiglass that was carved to get the shape that we were trying to go through. Then they went into 3D printing. Then they went into like plastic injection mold to metal and, and so on and different shapes and colors. So I think there's about a dozen. So just like it, just, just like when you're creating a video, right? I mean, only the person that created the video knows every little aspect that went into the video that some people won't even notice. Maybe it's a specific, you know, layer of coloring or, or whatever it is, right? What, what are, is there something that is so minute on the switch pod that, you know, attention to detail you guys had to put into it that maybe someone won't even notice, but you know, it's there. Yeah. I would bet there's a few things. I think people look at it too. And they're like, well, why is there this? And it's like, okay, there's a very specific reason why it does that. So, I mean, in the, in the middle, in the middle leg, there's a, there's a hole at the top here. I don't know if you can see that very well. I'll put it like that. So there was no hole there at the beginning um, because we have these two quarter 20s on the side of the legs here. So you can attach, you know, a small light. You could put your microphone there. You could put an arm with something else on it. You know, we just, people like to rig out their cameras and do different stuff with it. But if your screw was too long and you close the legs, it wouldn't close fully. So we had to make an open gap there for, you know, for the screw to be able to, to fit through. So there's a bunch of different stuff that only comes from making multiple prototypes and seeing what's going to work um, and, and just kind of playing with it. So, you know, someone could try to, you know, make a product in the first go and just sell it and see what happens, but then you'll get all the like issues. And so we tried to, as much as possible, get through as many of the issues as you can uh, before, you know, manufacturing the first batch of thousands of them. So, you know, we had we had to time the Kickstarter launch appropriately because we wanted to have a quote unquote final prototype so that when the Kickstarter campaign ended, we could start production on it um, versus, you know, kind of putting a Kickstarter campaign. It's like, oh, this is kind of what we're thinking. I feel like now Kickstarter is to a point where it's basically a shop, you know, companies like Peak Design or Moment or whoever else, you know, Peter McKinnon's bag with Nomadic, they the products are done, you know, they, they might not have all been produced, but they're, but they're done, you know, 99.9% done. And, you know, it's, it's a shop, it's a launching platform. It's a marketing play. Um, we definitely needed the, the money to, to make the production. You know, if we didn't meet our goal, we weren't going to go forward with it. So it's part marketing part. We needed the money, you know, so that, that that's what, that's one little feature. There's other ones too, but you know, I'll keep some of them a secret. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. Um, I'm really curious about the the kick, uh, Kickstarter campaign because, mm -hmm. like you said, a, a lot of you know companies, Nomadic and um, uh, Peak Design, launch campaigns, and they're they're basically it's basically for a finished product. But I would love to hear what goes into a successful Kickstarter campaign. I haven't had the opportunity to talk to many people that have actually launched a successful product on Kickstarter mm -hmm. and really the, the back end of what goes into the planning to successfully launch a product on Kickstarter other than, you know, 
having the lucky opportunity to have Peter McKinnon make an awesome video for you guys the day the Kickstarter yeah, campaign that started. that helped a lot. But yeah. it, that helped a lot. But w- besides that, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I'm sure you and Pat did to make sure the campaign was going to be successful, whether something like that happened or not. What kind of goes into uh, a campaign? I think the first part is just you, you have you have the video and you have the page with, you know, the text and the visuals to to convince someone to, to buy something. And I looked at a lot of successful Kickstarter campaigns. I looked at a lot of people that wrote about their successful Kickstarter campaigns and what worked and what didn't. And I formulated our Kickstarter page based on, you know, some of the campaigns that I was the most impressed by. Um, One of them is, or a couple of the people that I looked at were uh, Jeff from Ugmunk. He's launched multiple things on there. Gather, which is like a desk organizer, um, and a bunch of other things. Uh, the, the two guys at Studio Neat, uh, they've launched different things like uh, Glyph, which was one of the first iPhone tripod holders, and pens for iPads before those were a thing. And you know, these people that had kind of come up with unique product ideas and launched them on Kickstarter. But I would look at their video. I would look at how they formulated the page, how they used photos, how they used GIFs to, to show movement within the page while people are scrolling, um, how, what to say in the different sections, how to have like testimonials shown. And so like, you know, it was, it was looking at those two companies' Kickstarter pages as long as, or as well as, you know, Peak design and moment and other people more in my camera photo video space related to SwitchPod were doing theirs. So, you know, getting ideas from all these successful Kickstarter campaigns, that was how I formulated the page. And the page took a long time to put together. It was there were many drafts, uh, a lot of photography done by my wife and I, you know, shooting the promo video, that sort of thing, you know, and just try to convey what this product is as you know, succinctly as possible because it's a, it's a new thing. Most Kickstarters are for things you haven't seen before, or they, they usually are. So we had to, you know, showcase it in a bunch of different ways. So how did the um, opportunity present itself to have Peter make, make a video? I mean, to go along with the launch of that campaign, how did that Mm -hmm. work out? So we were back at vid summit 2018, so one year after we had the initial idea for SwitchPod, uh, we were at VidSummit. And initially we were thinking, wouldn't it be cool to launch on Kickstarter at VidSummit one year after we came up with the idea, you know, uh, but we just weren't ready, honestly. So we had, I think we had one, maybe two final prototypes at that point, because they were about $1,500 each to make. So like to custom make a switch pod, um, they're cheaper to make now because we make them in bulk. But at the time, you know, to have one machined out of metal and put together properly was about $1,500. So we took that to Vid Summit and we were showing it to people. We're like, we're going to launch on Kickstarter soon, you know, trying to build buzz. And we knew we wanted to show it to Peter because we're inspired by Peter. He's an amazing creator. And we know that, um, you know, he had a, a situation where a Gorillapod fell over and broke a lens. Like, so he had that, like, one thing to be like, okay, you know, this is maybe something that could replace it for Peter. Um, you know, and when we just honestly wanted his feedback on it. We had, Pat and I both spoke at a conference called, well, I'm going to, I'm going to blank, uh, Craft and Commerce put on by ConvertKit earlier in the year, so about a few months before this, and Casey Neistat was the keynote speaker at that. And we got like four minutes with Casey to show him a SwitchBod prototype, um, and he gave us three pieces of feedback, and we took all three pieces of those feedback and we incorporated it into the final prototype of SwitchBod. Um, we haven't since been able to get him one, or we don't know if he uses one or has seen it or not, but... Um, you know, it was like if there were two people we could think of that we wanted to show SwitchPod to before it launched, it was Casey and Peter, and we had the opportunity to do both. So we were waiting in line after Peter spoke at, at Vid Summit with 50 other people, you know, uh, to, to say hi or to get autographs or a picture or whatever. But we had the SwitchPod, and we wanted to show it to him. And 
it was like there was probably like 10 or 15 people in line still and the next speaker was like starting and people were gonna go out in the hall and continue the conversation i was like i don't know if this is the right time to show it to him you know he's got like one after another like people are like showing him stuff or pitching him stuff or just want a picture or our fans and i was like maybe we can see him later at like a speaker only event or something like that or get an introduction from somebody so that night was the last night of vid summit and there was a like a go-karting event at a k1 racing thing and pat and i went as speakers and like invite vip people only um and so we're showing us some people there and you know just kind of hanging out and and peter shows up and so we're like okay this would be the good time to to show it to peter so we ask, uh, well, Pat asked Daryl Eves, who started Vid Summit, um, if somehow we could get a couple minutes with Peter just to show him SwitchPod, just show him, see what he thinks, get any feedback, you know, that sort of thing. So he introduces us to Sean Holiday, who uh, runs Space Station Gaming, who represents Peter and Sean Duras and a bunch of other uh, video creatives. And we talked to Sean for a second and Sean introduced us to Peter and we, and we got a chance to show it to him. So that, that was like the, the line of events to, to even getting a chance to show the final prototype to Peter. And I, th I think that we did it the right way to get an introduction to him in a private setting and not, we're not trying to like pitch him anything. And he, he liked it. He asked if he could take it. And I was like, honestly, that's our only one. Can I, can I make one for you? And we'll, we'll send it to you. And he was like, sure. And so that was like October. So we got another one made. And in January, I asked, you know, I asked for Peter's address and sent it to him, you know, a couple weeks before the Kickstarter campaign started. Um, so we're just like, you know, heads down doing the Kickstarter campaign, taking photos, doing the video, all that kind of stuff. And Peter gets it and he... He's like, dude, I'd love to make a video about this. Can I publish it tomorrow? And I was like, can you wait one week until our Kickstarter campaign is ready? And so he he ends up, he's like, yeah, sure, whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll wait a week. Um, and so we launched the campaign. We launched it to our list. You know, a couple of friends of mine, uh, Levi Allen and Dave uh, from Kinotika, made some videos about on the launch. And we were at about $50,000 in six hours. Um, and then... My phone started blowing up and everyone's like, did you see Peter's video? And I didn't watch it. I didn't really get, uh, you know, like a warning, like, oh, I'm going to publish it at this time or anything like that. Um, you know, the only thing I think I got was Sean was like, Pete's publishing his video. And like, so Pat and I watched it in person. He like told the whole story about how he walked up to him and showed him the SwitchPod and event and how it's a Kickstarter campaign. And it's like, he doesn't usually like review products before they come out or, you know, he was completely honest and transparent and everything like that. And we gave him a, a kick booster link, which is kind of like an affiliate program for Kickstarter to kind of track, you know, what sales he made through the platform. And we could give him a percentage of those. Um, but yeah, long, long story short, uh, that, that's the, the story of how he ended up making the video and we didn't have any approval on it or anything like that. But in another six hours, we reached our goal of a hundred thousand dollars. So in, in about 12 hours. Um, and then there was still like 59 days left in the campaign to, to keep raising money. But that definitely gave us a huge boost financially, a huge boost kind of clout wise, the kind of people that were backing the campaign were people that I've subscribed to on YouTube and I've never talked to before. So all of that kind of stuff gave us gave us momentum to to open more doors, to talk to more people, to get into stores eventually, and things like that. Just the more money the campaign raised, the more you know customers we had, the more validation we had, the the more successful we could be going from from there. Yeah, I was going to ask how what kind of impact that that specific moment probably had on your company, but I mean, where how has the company grown now since the start of? The campaign. I mean, you guys are selling in, in multiple stores, right? Uh, multiple countries. Yeah, we're in somewhere between ten and fifteen retailers, and maybe like seven or eight countries. Um, you know, we we got product. You know, we started shipping October of twenty nineteen, and so within you know five months of that, uh, there's a global pandemic, which definitely hurt retailers and international shipping and all that kind of stuff. So. Um, the, the company has grown financially, but we keep it really lean. Like I, I run the day to day, 
Um, and Pat and I work together on strategy and big decisions and stuff like that. Um, we have one warehouse where we keep our inventory and we have the factory that we work with on, you know, new orders and new products and accessories and things like that. But I mean, we, we keep the company as lean as possible and that way we can put more money into more engineering, more prototyping, more, more product ideas that we're working with behind the scenes and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fun. It's a different kind of business for sure. There are a lot of different things that I had no experience with, you know, UPC codes and trademarks and copyrights and stuff like that, that patents, like all the stuff I'm learning about that didn't come to me when I was doing video production or, you know, digital type work. Well, I mean, it's definitely grown fast. I love mine. I actually have one. I, I love the packaging you guys did with it is absolutely amazing. It's a, it's a beautiful package that, that it comes in. Um, yeah. So with trademarks, I, I was curious, I want, it was something I wanted to ask you and if you can share the answer. Great. Mm-hmm. If not, that's cool too. Um, was, I know a lot of, a lot of people were kind of wondering why it initially didn't come with a ball head or, or some sort of like, you know, Arca Swiss quick release kind of plate that can be used with it instead of just screwing it on the camera. It did, did, trademarks kind of go into that. Is that something you have to kind of license the design to kind of incorporate into your product because someone else, someone else holds the patent to that? Or was it kind of a, just a, we love the switch pod and there's so many other ball heads and plates out there. People can, you know, mod their own. I mean, initially, initially we had no idea if switch pod was going to be success at all. And I personally, as a, you know, a gearhead, like I have a lot of other stuff. Like I know which kind of like plates I want to use and that sort of thing. So I, I kind of wanted to make something that was unique and could reinvent a part of your kit, not necessarily, not necessarily like do everything all at once. Um, so, I mean, even in our initial promo and launch, we had, we had Manfrotto ball heads on it. We had uh, Joby ball heads on it just to like show, oh, you can put a ball head on it and, you know, have more flexibility and things like that. Um, we do have to be careful about new product development and things like that because people have patents on certain elements and, you know, you can't just see a product and be like, oh, we'll make our version of that. So, you know, we're, we're careful about that. And, you know, even with our own ball head, we worked with our factory and a design that they had created to make sure that we weren't, you know, stealing or copying anybody else's idea. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to we wanted to make this first and see if it was successful and then, and then go from, go from there. So like you mentioned, I mean, when you, when you roll out a product, you start getting all the feedback of what people like, maybe what changes they would like. And I remember listening on another podcast that, you know, you don't really have versions. You kind of have like the Tesla model. You kind of just improve as you go. What were some of the initial feedbacks when the product first launched and what, what changes have you guys made along the way? Yeah. Like we don't have a, like, 2019 version or 2020 version or like switch pod two or anything like that like at least currently maybe we will eventually but um yeah we just wanted to each time we make a new order from the factory they're 5,000 switch pods or 10,000 switch pods or something like that and when we shipped out you know the 4,500 to kickstarter backers and then hundreds or thousands more to people that had bought it on our website or bnh or wherever since then you know, that's a big sample size to find out if there's any kind of engineering or, you know, mass production manufacturing issues. Um, so you know, like some of the things were just durability of like the feet, you know, like maybe they, the glue wasn't strong enough or something like that. Or um, the, the screw we learned could be, could be a stronger material. Just, we learned that in the engineering and manufacturing phase of, okay, maybe the screw isn't made of the same metal that the switch pod is. Maybe it needs to be even stronger because of how much it's used and you're screwing it in and out of a camera a bunch of times. And the little screw inside of a camera, the little tripod thread is a different type of metal that, you know, so you just, you learn all this stuff through sending it to thousands of people and people dropping them and people doing stuff to the, the, the mass produced units that you didn't do to your $1,500 prototype to find out like, when will this thing break? You know, like, no, I needed it to take the pictures for Kickstarter. So those are just the type of things you learn. Um, And then you learn like what, 
what do you need replacement parts for? And there's only so many pieces to a switch pod, but you learn like, oh, people lose the circle rubber pad on the top somehow, or, you know, on the ball head, they lose the little pad or, you know, so that's, that's just the added thing of, of making a physical product is the inventory you need to keep, keep dealing with shipping, dealing with timelines of getting a product made and put on a boat and brought over to the United States from China and the little pieces that you need extra parts of. And, you know, it's just a, it's just a different, different kind of business, but you know, if you can if you can build in the margin of what you charge and what you can make it for, then you know you have room to do those things and take care of your customers. So, looking back at, I mean, the whole experience, it's been. I mean, how many years was for going all the way back? When did when did the idea start? October twenty seventeen. So just a little over three years ago. So looking back three years ago, I mean, what if you could take one thing away from that whole process, which I know is a big ask, what would it be? <laughs> I think that if we wouldn't have been patient with the process, then it wouldn't have launched as successfully as it did. And there would have been way more issues once we tried to, you know, ship it to people. Um, like we, we were very patient with the prototyping phase. Like, yeah, I wanted to like give some of my ideas and have it next to me, you know, an hour later or whatever. But, you know, our engineer was in another state. He had to 3D print something. He had to mail it. He had to do it, you know, along with all the other projects he's working on. And, you know, so having the patience to go through the prototyping process, to show it to people in person, to keep it private for a bit until we got it to a certain stage, then share it publicly at VidCon, get strangers to give us feedback on it and tell us what they would pay for it, you know, showing it to, to Casey Neistat and being able to be like, okay, yeah, he's right. It needs to be smaller. It should be black instead of silver, you know, like whatever the, the things were. And then waiting until we had that final prototype and the timing of, you know, being able to show it to Peter had a big success for our campaign, which, you know, so I think just having patience with the whole process and not being so like worried about, oh, we need to launch this now. Cause we pushed the Kickstarter launch back a couple times just cause we weren't ready. And I'm, I'm glad that we did because of how things came together. So I would say patience would be one of the things. And then even after we launched on Kickstarter, like just being patient and communicating to our backers, like, hey, we're gonna be one month later than we said, is that okay? Too bad, cause we're gonna be one <laughs> month later than we said. Um, but you know, I, I went to the factory I went to the factory in China before they mass produced them to like just the last, mm -hmm. you know, look over and give me the, the 10 or so that you've made and make minor tweaks. And if that delays things, it delays things. We're shipping to over 4,000 people. I want them to get what they paid for and have it to work right. And so this, it's, it's not like, oh, I can film this video and post it tonight. It's, it's so different than that because of all the moving pieces, all the people involved and it just being a physical product is just so different. Yeah. I mean, what great feedback. I mean, patience. I could see how if you guys weren't patient, how it could have went horribly wrong, probably if you if you weren't, you know, because you want to get that product just right when you get it into into people's hands, because it could make or break your your brand, basically, if, if you weren't patient with the whole process. So I have to ask now that you mentioned, I totally forgot to ask what were the the what was the feedback that Casey had the, the three things when you uh, showed them the switch pod initially? Size was definitely one of them. So the, the silver prototype that we had that we showed at VidCon and Pat and I published videos about um, was bigger. It probably had another like three or four inches of height. And Casey said it was, it was just too big. It was just like, it was too big of a, a, a tripod, too big of a handheld grip. Um, so that was one of them. Uh, he said to make it black for sure because he wanted it to be discreet he's already filming himself in public he doesn't want to you know stand out anymore uh which is opposite to what some people say they're like i want a pink one or i want like a bright green one or people spray paint theirs or whatever so you know um we, we just ended up making it in one color and i oh we asked him if he if he needs a ball head so this goes back to what you were saying because we were like should we launch this thing with a ball head do you need a ball head and he was like no, not really. You know, like you just kind of point it differently, you know? So the the way he films, I feel like doesn't necessarily need a ball head because it slows him down. You know, he's, he's filming vlog style or he's setting it down on a table and he's shooting like pretty wide. 
and you know you, you don't need like the perfect angle and as long as you set this on a table that's flat you know your your image is going to be flat so you really only need the ball head for up and down um so even we've even like thrown around ideas of like okay what could be something that just makes the camera angle up and down but doesn't necessarily go side to side so you know those those are the pieces of feedback we got from him um and like there's there's always things you can change about a product. People are going to tell you a bunch of different ideas, but you know, it comes down to like incorporating as much as you can and keeping it as simple as possible. And, and, you know, then you make thousands of them. So it's like, you know, at some point you need to draw the line in the sand and be like, this is what our product is. So I don't know. We're, we're always, you know, taking feedback from people, coming up with new ideas, trying different things, trying different products. Um, but you know, just having a couple products and trying to market it around the world and get more sales is is a lot of work too. So it's it's trying to manage the, the two sides. Well, Caleb, man, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned uh, it's been great learning about you know the behind the scenes process of a switch pod, your background, and how you got into you know your creative ambitions and and you know having your YouTube channel and, and all that. It's it's been great. I'm sure we could talk for. For a lot longer, but I, I don't want to take up all your time. So if people want to find out more uh, about you and about SwitchPod, where where should they go? Uh, my personal website is calebw.com, C-A-L-E-B-W.com, because my last name's too hard to spell. So I had to buy a domain that didn't have my full last name in it, just so it redirects to the actual website. Um, and then SwitchPod is switchpod.co. Um, and you can look up SwitchPod on YouTube and you can see some of the videos about how it works and some of our accessories and things like that. Right on. Well, guys, all that will be linked down in the show notes and in, you know, the video description if you're watching the video. I hope you guys have enjoyed this conversation with Caleb. He's a really great guy, makes some great YouTube videos. You should definitely go check out the channel. And, of course, check out SwitchPod. I love mine. If you don't have one, you need to get one. All right, guys. Well, if you've enjoyed this episode of The Hive Podcast, make sure you give it a thumbs up if you're watching it. Rate it in the Apple Podcast Player. Take the time, leave a review. It really does help the show get out there to more people. And I appreciate you guys listening each and every week. And we'll talk to you guys next week.